Welcome back to Flipside, folks. Uh, we are ready for another week of action. We're in the middle of July. Brian Moritz joining me here. I'm Galen Clavio. Brian, uh, have you um, have you had any Hamilton tremors lately? Have I had any Hamilton tremors? Yes, actually, I did. Um, the, the, it, this is funny because we were talking about Hamilton before we hit record. Um, uh, obviously, this past weekend, big, the big Hamilton news was three of the of the original cast members, including Lin-Manuel Miranda, Leslie Odom, who won the Tony, and Philippe Sue, who played Eliza, the three, basically the three leads of the show. They had their final performance. Um, and we actually did watch the bows on Facebook Live, which I know ties into one of our topics. It was funny. I actually, my wife, my, my daughter went, our daughter went to bed. My wife went to Wegmans to do some grocery shopping, figuring 9.30 Saturday night. We were going on vacation this week, so just needed a few things to get us through. Nice leisurely solo trip to Wegmans. After five, she's at the store five minutes. Hamilton Hamilton's broadcasting its final curtain at ten forty five. She's like, run through the store, grab anything that looks like food, elbow people out of the way. But no, this is this is the second uh, thing I've I've uh, talked about this on today. But a few months ago, I actually sent. I do this sometimes. It sounds a little cheesy, but I like doing it. I sent Lin Manuel Miranda, the writer and star of the show, uh, a thank you note. And I do this to, to, to people sometimes, like when I generally admire their work, and not to get anything back, but just as a simple, like, you made this thing that my wife, who's a Broadway obsessive, and my daughter, who's in theater, adore. Thank you for that. You make my, pe- my people happy, and I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And never expecting anything in return. Just, like, send them a card. I send them a little picture of my daughter in one of her plays. Saturday, the day of, the, of their final performance, I go out to the mailbox, and there's a, an envelope from the Richard Rogers Theater, and he had written me a note back that oh. said, thank you for your note, signed it, and, and autographed. And I was like, you know, that probably took him, what, a minute, two minutes at most? Made my, you know, made my year. So, yes, there are Hamilton tremors, but incredibly nice move for Lin Manuel. Well, Min- I mean, I mean e- EJ Manuel's not doing that for exactly. you. you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, Lynn, since you are a, a, a longtime listener to this podcast, sure. thank you for that note. That that was that is wonderful. Um, so yeah, we do have a couple different topics today. We have some listener mail to get to. We have kind of a serious topic, uh, a quasi serious topic, and then we have the, the link from Deadspin that I posted to Twitter last week that I did want to address. Yes, because apparently you have ex- random experience in this. Uh, because of course you do. But first of all, um, I have a repeat beer this oh. week. I'm drinking the last of the of my stash of Fat Tire New Belgium, still as good as it was last week. Um, I have nothing creative to say about my beer again. So, what do you have? I, I think this is a repeat from season one. Okay, but, uh, I have the uh, the busted knuckle hybrid porter. All right, it does sound okay. Yeah, this is from Quaff on Brewery here in in uh, Nashville, Indiana, which is uh, over the over the river and through the woods right. uh, to to. The people that like to live in the woods, the druids, they're like druids yes. in Indiana, but they're much more artsy and crafty. Um, Funny, much, they don't look druish. Well, they're not. They're, yeah, they're, <laughs> they don't, I don't know. But um, no, but uh, it's a good beer. It's a, you know, the, the, the hybrid porter it does a really, really nice job. Little, little heavy on the alcohol content. We're up in the seven percents with this, but so, uh, so a hybrid porter is it a porter and it's uh, like a, it tastes okay. You ever had a Schwartz beer? It's like a the black lager. You never had. Oh, that I've before? had a black lager. Yes. That's a, that's Schwartz beer. I, I, I've never actually it, called it by its by its Yiddish name, but right. Um, like, <laughs> I think that's just German. Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> but um, you know, here's the thing: it doesn't really, it doesn't have the harshness or the multi undertones of a, of a, of a black lager. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's it's like a light porter, basically. So it's kind of like a porter lager hybrid. Okay. And and I actually quite enjoy it. I think it's got a lot of of character to it. Uh, it's a good, it, despite being a darker beer, it's a good beer on a, a nice summer day, and I, I I respect that. That's good. I'm excited. We're going down. We have a trip down, uh, an annual vacation that we take to Rehoboth Beach. We're going down later this week, so we'll be in the uh, in the Dogfish Head. Uh, oh yeah realm of the country probably not going to go to the brewery tour because i think as i said on here brewery tours just you know i know how you make beer i don't really yep. need to see how you make beer but the the uh the brew pub is down there and that's always always an excellent time so that should be a lot of fun i, I yeah. expect a lot of facebook live coming out of that oh speaking of facebook live let's go right let, let's segue as you broadcasters used to call it um you had a topic that you brought up that you wanted that you wanted to uh, potentially discuss, and this is coming out of you know the the unfortunately serious news that we've been following uh, the past week with the kind of reemergence of Black Lives Matter and protests involving police shootings of African American men, um, and obviously the, the sniper attacks in Dallas a few days a few days after that, um, and the one. Uh, the one shooting, which is actually broadcast, the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of the shooting was actually broadcast on, on live Facebook stream, Live, on, live stream uh, yeah. on Facebook Live, live stream. Yes, not broadcast. So you can already see the, the complication here of conflating right. old terms and new terms. Um, but you wanted to, to kind of bring bring up that. And obviously, we're not I don't think we want to get into you know, what, what more can we say about the Black Lives Matter and that right. issue that isn't being said better by people more attuned to that. But I think we did want to talk about. Uh, the the live streaming of news and this was your idea and you had sent over an article so what were what were your initial thoughts on this and well I've seen a couple of articles on this and I think the, the there's concern and then there's concern trolls I mean it's the normal thing in the news cycle these days where something new occurs and immediately there's a story written about it where we go and we describe the issue and then we find some fringe advocacy group who's like, this is bad, and then talks about all the reasons that it's bad, presenting that like it's a mainstream issue. This one's a complicated one, because it it actually, I know this seems like a serious topic, and it kind of is, but to me, it's it's a serious topic, not necessarily because it ties into Black Lives Matter, or even that it ties into necessarily sports per se, but what it does do is I think it forces us to reevaluate the way that we think about the concept of broadcasting and video and rights and the the preconceived notions that we have about what should and should not be available in a live stream uh, without an editor, without somebody having like pre evaluated the material. And so there's a lot of different avenues we could go down on this. I mean, you know, the, the, I'll try to summarize, I sent you a wall street journal article, but there's several other articles in other, in other, uh, I think Yahoo had an article on it earlier this week. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, what they've talked about is, well, you know, there have been concerns about violence being depicted or or i mean depicted is the wrong phrase it's like violence actually being evident in a facebook live stream or a periscope or or a or something on live leak or something like that mm-hmm. um because you don't know that it's coming necessarily like and you know we've seen this happening more and more i mean I, my first real 
kind of holy crap moment when it came to this was actually watching the protests in Ferguson For, yes. last yeah. year. And, you know, people are, are using, um, using live stream video and they're showing, you know, the police firing like flares at people uh, from tanks and things like that. And you're just like, Oh my God, like this is not something that you're, you're seeing yeah. on, uh, on CNN or on Fox news or any place like that. Um, and so, the the human in me and the creative person in me and the broadcaster in me looks at that and, and says, okay, this is important. This is something that we as humanity need to embrace. And then we saw it again with, with the shooting in Minneapolis. We, sh- we saw it with the, the live streams out of Dallas during the, the attack on the police. Mm-hmm. You're, you're getting these actual live videos of what's going on. And... You know, from a news gathering perspective, as a human being, I don't care about as a reporter, but as a, as a human being, to be able to tune into something that's going on in the moment, that that is being shot by people on the ground, in the immediate vicinity, or right in the midst of it, as we saw in the Minneapolis thing, is incredibly powerful. It may be, and I'm, I'm trying not to delve too far into hyperbole here, it may be the most powerful carrier of news and messaging that we have ever discovered in humanity uh in as much as it it's completely unfiltered and it provides us with a view that we would not have otherwise um now people's concerns are well what if people don't want to be exposed to violence they may be watching one of these not knowing what's going to happen and then you know you know there have been situations there was a guy who who facebook lived his own suicide i think a couple of months ago and you know we've had other sorts of situations like that and, you know, so I look at all that and I think, wow, this is a really fascinating point. And, and I guess what I worry about is the, you know, the, the, the live video of things has, has been seen as the providence of networks and, and, and you know, cable or satellite or, or broadcast in general, um, as opposed to being the providence of, of individual people who have the power now to provide those sorts of images across the globe. And I would be, I think it's got such a powerful potential to it. I'm already preemptively worried that there's going to be steps taken to curtail it, censor it, uh, create an atmosphere where it's no longer allowed because mm-hmm. there's a concern on the part of people, perhaps without the best of interests at heart, that this is something that is too powerful and has too much potential. Or with conflicted interests at heart. I wouldn't, uh, nec- yes. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like Machiavellian, all Machiavellian on them. You know, Not certain, all. There's, cer- there's, there's certain self-interest for the networks involved. I mean, I do agree with you. You know, the, the, the live video, you know, it's it is incredibly powerful and awesome. And now I'm speaking, you know, I can speak from a journalism standpoint and a journalism education standpoint, you know, my, in my online journalism classes. I mean, par- you know, we haven't, we didn't do much. I think Facebook Live debuted near the end of the semester or near enough to the end of the semester that we were already knee deep in other stuff. We didn't play with it. But Periscope is about what, a year, year and change old now. That's a, that's that's a huge you know I have a whole periscope unit now and I think it's so powerful because you're right the what you know if TV was kind of like the defining medium of the 20th century because it was able to bring you live images of 
wars protests. Think of the power of showing the Vietnam War and the protests. Think of the power of showing the civil rights movement and the and the the riots after in the in sixty seven and sixty eight and, and and the power that those images had. That was the providence of the network. And you know you had to have the technology there because of the time. And now I think you're you're seeing that 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 last power really democratized down. And it's interesting how looking at the technological curve in journalism how it it really went from first of all first everyone could write and publish with blogs then audio and then video and audio came with youtube and with you know being able to do podcasts like this and pictures too pictures were obviously much bigger than audio but being able to post pictures and then social media platforms came about and that now that added a publishing aspect where now you weren't just taking get taking stuff you're able to publish it yourself but there, but the live video is such a it, that that's such a p- potential paradigm shifter because yeah. now um, now everyone has it. And I was watching, I was seeing periscopes on my Twitter feed, uh, periscope videos last night from confrontations in Baton Rouge, uh, ongoing between police and and protesters. And it is, it is, it's really powerful. I mean, as a journalism educator, I personally, I love it. Because now I can say, you know, we have a very strong broadcasting unit and I don't, I I say all this not demeaning the job and the work that professional broadcasters do with their equipment and with their skill set and their editing. That is awesome. But we all have now the ability, not just, you know, we can, we're broadcast, we can live, I'm going to say broadcast. I know it's live stream, work with me. Uh, The broadcast, we're able to, to publish live video and because you're because you're there, you know, just the fact that you're there and you're able to shoot that. And I think that, you know, like TV and, and, and that ability was the kind of defining medium of the 20th century. This is really shaping up, especially especially early in the 21st century. This is going to be the defining medium of the 21st century is the live the ability to live to live stream video what's going to be in what, what what makes it kind of interesting and challenging i think is um when you get into you're publishing these on facebook or through facebook or through periscope which is owned by twitter and now you, you're going to kind of get in, in that it raises a couple interesting questions one um our twitter we'll use twitter and periscope interchangeable at least I will. Are Twitter and Facebook now news sites? Are they news networks because they're hosting them and basically providing people the means to broadcast that? Are they more like ISPs in that they're just the, the conduit? As one issue, one initial. And let's tackle that to start with because that's been like, you know, Facebook has been. People have been claiming Facebook needs to be editing these things or, or or monitoring them, censoring them. They took the they took the the posted video that the woman in Minneapolis posted of of, uh, of her boyfriend getting shot by the police. They took it down for like five hours before finally putting it back up. The, you know, there, there's been complaints that they are inconsistently applying their own editing rules. I do think I, my perspective on this, and I'm curious to hear yours. I don't think. You, I don't think it's wise from a policy perspective to look at Facebook or Twitter and hold them accountable for what's being said on their services. I've never believed in any in any like whether it's in blogging or whether it's in in stuff that's getting posted. I mean, obviously, if something's 
if something violates terms of service or if something violates the boundaries of like decency or what have you, you can take action as a company. But the idea that Facebook should be in the moment responsible for anything that gets streamed, I think, again, is a very old media viewpoint. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of like, to some degree, it it's like, you know, we want to, we blame network television with the Janet Jackson thing, you know, like CBS got this huge fine mm-hmm. for the, for, you know, the, the, the nipple thing. And right. I mean, they didn't foresee that happening. It happened. They didn't, I don't think they caused it to happen by any means. And yet they got levied these huge fines because the FCC still has these rules on the books from the forties and fifties about public airwaves. Mm-hmm. And I, it's a different thing. A, there's no airwaves, and B, the idea that you should be pre-monitoring video that's coming through your system and then deciding whether or not it meets community guidelines kind of destroys the whole notion of this being a user-generated content platform. Right. Like You can cultivate it or, or take it off afterwards, but the idea that you're censoring before it gets on is... I mean, it kind of destroys the whole purpose of, or maybe purpose is the wrong word, but it destroys yeah. the, the sense of the network that that exists right now. And right. I and I and I think it's a mentality issue that needs to be addressed very very soon. Well, and I, and I think just I, I agree with you, and it just kind of I was thinking about it, you know, from you know, kind of a dumb logistical standpoint. I mean, how is what, what do you, are you going to have some people, a group of people at Facebook, literally just watching every potential live stream as it's happening and making real time decisions? How are you going to do that? How are you going to have too many people? What strict guidelines are they going to be using to do the FCC guidelines? We can talk all night about how those are potentially problematic and don't address violence, but overly address sex. How are we going to, uh, you know, I, I, I just think that that's, you know, logistically too, it's just problematic. You know, I have no problem with, Facebook marching some marking something as explicit or violent viol- violent content. You know, I, I I'm always a big fan. I guess I'm more of a big fan of you know labeling it as as much as you can. This is violent. This is sexual in nature. This is profane by you know normal community standards. Whatever. I I I I just think the idea of trying to yeah. I mean the the the, the idea that. Facebook is a you know news network the same way that CBS or ABC is is ridiculous. You know ABC News had one station, had one network. You know has affiliates, but there's one main feed. There's one group of it's one organization. Facebook and Twitter, by their by their definition, are diffuse social platforms, and so you can't have. I don't think you can. I don't think you can look at them the same way. I don't think you can monitor them the same way, and. I just think, yeah, I think it does. I think it violates the spirit of what these, what 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 this can be and what this is. And you know, it's a live, you know, because what would get shut, you know, if, if you just think about it, and you know, I'll get political for a second. What would get shut down first? Anybody who's a protester who happens to be protest, you know, filming police action. Well, what would you be surprised if that's the video that starts disappearing because it's explicit or violence or you know, insert whatever cover word you want to put here no i don't think so so i i I, and and, you know also from a media law perspective you have to have to do any kind of you know 
restricting of broadcast content. You have to have consistent standards that you're judging by. You have to have a consistent across the board uh, manner uh, for restricting it. And I don't see one. There's not one on the books that I know of for bro- for live internet. You know, this is one of the one of the areas, and I teach this in my law class all the time, where the law is a good five, ten years behind where we are in the tech. Just that's how law and case law develops. We don't make it. You know, Zuckerberg doesn't make it up on the fly. It it goes there. There there's the the process for it. And so, um, yeah, I just I the idea of censoring of, of trying to censor it um, because it because it's violent. Um, I mean, TV networks showed what was the the, the pen, Bud's wire. I mean, they 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 showed that they showed that video even with warning, and that was carried live. Um, and yes, it was a thing, but still, I think um, I, I I I think the, a lot of the you know there is you know again I'll go back to this word kind of Machiavellian, but there is this you know whenever you see old media types kind of tying Facebook Live and Periscope for the content on there. It always is, I think, useful to kind of take a step back and just think, well, yeah, because they're taking, they're, they're, they're trying to protect their turf. And and it's not just old media types. And to, you got political, I'll get a little conspiratorial. Yes. The, the ability of government historically to influence mass media distribution oh, of yes. news and information. I mean, we've got it on record. I mean, you know the the you know the, the CIA was was utilizing figures in in the news media in the 60s and 70s for dissemination of of material sometimes right. unwittingly but they were st- that we need these things have been demonstrated in the past and so um you know it's fascinating watching this process because in sports we look at it from a purely economic perspective right. and you got like the SEC like trying to ban people from using their cell phones in stadiums because of rights violations and stuff like that and people right. freaking out because of live video being streamed out of stadiums mm-hmm. and now in fact there you know there's some kind of what did i read recently that 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 apple was was looking into the possibility of creating uh, uh like uh, an, yes I know what you mean. Pat, Apple got a patent or has a patent that yes. can lock your phone, shut down phones at concerts, which would, you know, you can extrapolate that out to right. whatever, whatever. Sporting events, what oh, have yeah. you. Yeah. Political events. We talk, you know, we, 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 you know. Slippery so we, slope it down, but yeah. Right. But, you know, but, but the idea of, of media and, and then government either indirectly or directly trying to use the messages in media as a way to kind of clamp down on messages that they don't want to see disseminated widely. It's what make the, makes this so fascinating. It's why I wanted to start us off talking about it, because it really does point to a completely different landscape where if you have the ability to broadcast these, you know, any, any event live as it's going on and other people can see it, it, it takes the traditional chain of command of reporting the news completely out of the picture. And now it's a matter of what we, we have a visual of what occurred. Now let's analyze it rather than let's get accounts of what occurred from eyewitnesses, which is a totally different methodology. Right. And eyewitness accounts are notoriously awful. You can never base them. You're going to have, you know, any protest you're going to have. I mean, you 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 saw the I, I'm blanking on his name and I apologize the Black Lives uh, Matter activist who was arrested I believe in Baton Rouge and was held for a long time this is all over my Twitter feed I forget his name but one of the leading Black Black Lives activists and it was you you, you already saw the counter um, 
the, the counter messaging, the police saying they, he was on the road and we told him to move and he didn't. And everyone and many witnesses saying, no, he didn't move. He was he was fine. They, they were harassing him. And you can even look what was interesting is um, Dallas, uh, yep. the, the guy, the guy who was a suspect walking around with a, with, 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 with a rifle. And then the video, I, bel- I don't know if it was user video or if it was Dallas TV video. I believe it was Dallas. Regardless, it was video that clearly showed him walking, just walking around while the shooting was going. Now, you probably shouldn't be even in an open carry state taking a rifle to a protest is, you know, high on the dummometer, but, you know, within your legal rights in the state of Texas. But it does kind of show, but, but it does take that, that, that it does kind of change the idea of reporting. And I think it, in, in a very good way because now we can show the video. And now well, instead of trying to get eyewitnesses, now we can move, advance the story in a more meaningful way rather than well, just recreating think- it. Think about the original reporting of the Dallas situation. I mean, I woke up on that morning and it was like there were you know, two or three snipers mm-hmm. plus additional shooters. And right. and that was the story. And then that video started circulating that the guy took on his cell phone and I think the, I think it was a Facebook live stream of the of the the shooter, you know, flanking the police officer on the ground, you know, coming around the column and shooting him from behind. Yeah. And you look at that and you're like, "Wait a minute." Were there multiple shooters? And as it turns out, apparently there were not multiple shooters. And I don't know, I don't know if we don't see that perspective. I don't know that that narrative breaks as as easily or as early as it does. Yeah. I I mean, and and, and one of the the things that we, uh, I'll speak in the we as journalists have to do and realize that we have to do now is, and this has been burgeoning since really since Twitter became a, a big player in social media became a big player and live updates became a big player is you know breaking news is messy like the 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 reports of two or three shooters like that was that that was false but those are the things that happen in in those kind of story and it's nobody's fault it's just you know it's a chaotic environment they're getting information you're reporting it as you get it and i think the challenge we have is as as journalists now is to be you know that information you know brian um oh andy carvin has spoken about this in great, at great length. Like the information, all this information is out there. People are listening to scanners as something like Dallas is going on and are tweeting what's being said, and that's getting repeated. And I think that you know one of the main jobs, and, and now these videos are out, out here, and I'll say complicating it in the best possible way. It's more information. It's more um, almost information overload. We had actually just gotten back. Um, it was, I think it was Thursday night was the con, what was that was Dallas because we had just gotten back from an Avett Brothers concert in Syracuse and we were like, like catching, we got home and it's like doing a quick catch up before going to sleep and, and it was just as this was, ha- it was, it was ongoing as it was happening and trying to figure out what's going on is, you know, of course chaotic and I think that's the challenge and, and the job of journalists now is to, to do our best, whether and and maybe this isn't something you do on Twitter. This is maybe something you do on your site, collating feeds from from these social networks. Is in the and, and I've seen a lot of some news organizations do this really well. Here's what we know. Here's what people are saying. Here's what we don't know. And that's a very it's a traditionally unjournalistic thing to admit what you don't know or what's unknown. And I think that 
you know that's a that that's an important skill we have on this with all this new information. Rather than I was working on a blog post on this last week about sports and it and it fell apart because it, it just wasn't very good. But there's an idea there there there's like the the being first to report versus breaking the story. And I think we we're at we're at a point in a lot of journalism where we have to seed the seed the case of being first to report something. There's no real value in that anymore. Whereas my, my, my difference is breaking the story is reporting something that wouldn't be reported without journalism or taking the messy information and kind of analyzing it or, 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 co- or putting it together in, in, in an important way. And I think that, that with all of these live streams going on, that that's an important skill that, that we have. We're, we, we're, we're not necessarily just the witnesses anymore. Now we have to be the... The anal- analyze. I, I also hate the word analyze because I feel like anal- real a- analyzing takes some thought and time. But perspective and context maybe is the better word I'm thinking of here. Um, as we wrap this topic up, because I know that somebody will give me some blowback on it, I posted on my Facebook page the Carl Bernstein article from 1977, the 25,000-worder the from Rolling Stone about the CIA and the media. Oh, uh, nice. It's, it's, it's worth the read. Uh, it's, it's long, but it's worth the read. But anyway. All right. Uh, I, will, I will put that into uh, show notes, which, as always, are it's worthmediaguy.com on the flip side uh, page. Yeah. So. So let's move on. Let's talk yes. about let's talk about something a little less uh, daunting to the future of humanity. Yes, um, sports academies. Sports academies. This was your. We we've been holding on to this for a little bit. This was on a soccer related Twitter rant from you a couple weeks ago. So I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you stake your case. So you know the the concept is basically this. You know I am of the opinion that for a majority of the sports in the United States that we know of is you know, our core sports, we actually don't do a great job of training athletes. Um, we, we tend to look at athletics to some degree as like a weird mix of throwing a lot of money at our kids and hoping that it sticks into something that, that becomes an athletic prowess of some sort mixed with, Oh, it's part of the educational process because that's where they learn to be people. You know, they they learn leadership and life skills and all of this. Or men become men. And women become women. Sure. uh, Or whatever. You know, (laughs) uh, I was going to say when men become men, but I was like, well, Brian will chastise me for not including women in that. So, um, (laughs) but, um, so, so I look at, uh, you know, in a lot of our sports, I don't think it matters that much. Like in football, nobody else plays football. Like really. I mean, I know Canada just beat the U.S. in like the under 21, like world championship, which none of our best players played in. But, um, and in baseball, uh, you know, we still do a very good job of developing baseball players. Although the way that we do that is, is decidedly different from how we do things in most other sports, but I'll come back to that. But in the two sports that have become world sports, uh, soccer, which is relatively new to the uh, the American sports bloodstream, and bas- and basketball, which certainly is not new to the American bloodstream. I feel like we're losing ground every year in the way that we develop athletes because we uh, so much of it is based on income of the parents. So much of it is based on the place that you live and what school district that happens to be in and how good the coaching or the other players are in that. And, you know, what it got me thinking about uh, was, okay, how do we change that? Because obviously in, in basketball, it seems like 
Um, we struggle in our, our NBA draft this year. The NBA draft, you know, was was chock full of foreign-born players, players that have trained in other countries, uh, who were being drafted in the first round over. American players, players that went to college uh, for two, three, sometimes four years. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is because NBA teams look at those foreign players and they're like, they're more skill ready. Like they, they, they seem to, to have a mix of skills and athleticism that exceeds the American population of basketball players in many cases, not all of them, but in many in soccer. Um, you know, if you watch the USA versus Argentina, the U.S. was clearly outclassed from a an on-field skill and talent perspective. And so I look at these sorts of things and I think, all right, well, what is it about our approach that is that is going wrong and, and who's doing it right? And if you look at the way that soccer is handled, particularly in Europe um, – they really they they utilize this academy system where rather than treating sports as an ancillary to the education system sports is in and of itself a means to an end to some degree um you get pulled into an academy system uh financing is not an important thing it's something that that a, a team provides they train you in how to be a a proper player uh you you get education through that process and at the end of it, you're either good enough to go play professionally or you're not, but there's none of the ambivalence that you a lot of times get within the American system, which extends the development cycle in many cases all the way through to the end of your college career, by the time, by, by which time you're already four years into adulthood. Right. So, um, no, I just thought it was an interesting, an interesting area because, um, it, to go to something like that actually isn't as big of a leap as many people would think because we already have academy systems in the U.S. through IMG Academy for things like tennis, gymnastics. Um, but but in our major sports, it's almost seen as something that we couldn't possibly do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the reasons for that are necessarily strictly because we're married to the uh, to the, the to the the current system. I think it's there's more a philosophical element involved in it. All right, so I like to hear your argument on a philosophical level, but it sounds to me, and I'm not super familiar with this, so I'll, I'll, I'll be more like interested listener than super um, informed co-host here. But um, it sounds like it's the, the the sports academies in other countries. It sounds kind of like I'm looking at the arts and and music as a model, so almost kind of like a Juilliard or a Berkeley School of Music type situation. Yeah, I mean, here I, one of my. One of my uh, thought processes is this: you know, we're we don't have a problem societally if if you as a parent say, my child, I want them to have a career in music, you know, and you have to put them through a significant amount of training and lessons, and it's like a completely different lifestyle uh, for that kid if they want to become uh, a top level musician, mm-hmm. uh, because you know that in order to stay ahead of the curve, or at least on the curve, you have to do that, otherwise they fall behind a lot of the other kids that are out there. Right. Um, you see a similar sort of thing with dance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and yet with athletics, it's almost like there's a bias against saying, I, I you know, my child is going to be uh, exemplary at athletics, that's going to be their career. Um, and I feel like from a philosophical perspective, uh, we, we allow this to happen in the non-mainstream sports, like the specialty sports, like tennis, for instance. Like nobody blinks if you if you say, okay, my kids, I want my kid to become a tennis great. 
you're going to have to take them to IMG or right. someplace, and they're going to have to like train their ass off until they're 14 or 15, and then they're going to be a professional. Right. Um, same thing with gymnastics. Like by the time they're 16, they're too old in some cases. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a a real resistance to doing that with the like the mass consumer sports, the basketballs mm-hmm. and the footballs and the and the soccer's, um, because it almost it's almost like it's um, it almost I almost feel like there's a there's a, a societal taboo uh, against deeming that a career path, which seems odd to me because we celebrate athletes and we celebrate people who make it, who get drafted, but it's almost like to dedicate your child to doing that at age seven or eight or whatever it is in the U.S. is considered to be a negative, Mm -hmm. even though just across the border from where you're at, there's Canadian parents doing that with hockey at that right. same age, if not earlier, right. uh, you know, on a, uh, like in every town in that country. Right. So I don't know. It's, it's just, I, I, I don't fully understand why that attitude is what it is, especially with the fervor around sports. But the, the, the idea that we haven't more fully professionalized this process of, of sports development, that we haven't taken it out of the hands of the scholastic side of things is, right. is really puzzling to me. I mean, I mean, a few thoughts on that. Um, one, I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, it is. It, I was thinking about this more um, earlier today, and there always is this, you know, real push, and it, it strikes me so much at how many how many times you hear the stats of like one point one percent of high school basketball players make the NBA, and you know, I see this a lot. You know, you, you know, the, the the of course it's an absurdly low percentage who make the NBA. Blah blah blah. Or the NFL, or you know, whatever pro major league, and so it is really, you know, sports. At, sports aren't. It is that weird dichotomy, right? Sports are important. They build character. We celebrate athletes. You can make, you you can get one pro contract and be set for, and you and your family are financially set for life if you don't blow your money. Um, where at? But there's always this. But what's your backup plan? But right. you're probably not going to make it, so you, you got to better make... get your degree. Exa- well, I, 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 I'm getting there with that, and I just I, I find it funny because you know my daughter's involved with with theater, and you know we're, we're and, and you know she loves it. It's her favorite thing in the world. She's shown some some skill at it. Now she's five and a half, so she's shown some good skill for being five and a half. We're not stage parents or anything like that, but you know it is the huh, you know she, she might want to do this at a at a bigger than community level and i don't ever see anything like 0.1% of all people who do kids who do community theater end up on broadway or something like that so is there is that 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 weird split on it i mean my my initial response to your query would be you know our old follow the money you know there's a huge financial incentive in keeping college football very strong and keeping college basketball very strong college baseball to an extent, but again, as you point out, baseball's kind of got a better, better development system. Although they're trying to kill that in the minor leagues, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but but I, I but but I mean, to me, that that just strikes me as as it. You know why? You know they the the pro leagues get basically free to. Uh, they don't have to invest in a development system. One is provided to them by colleges and we're both fans of college athletics and we both support college ba- college basketball and football and watch it and cheer for it. And so I, I feel like with that system set up, um, there's no there's no pressing need for the leagues to invest. I mean, you saw the NBA do a D-League, but that's more of a minor league for guys who can't make it. That's not a true developmental league in the way you're talking about, like the hockey 
system where it's the, the, the miners and the major miners and the juniors and, 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 and that system. Um, I would, I would have to read more. I do know anecdotally that the Canadian junior system, while it does develop very good hockey players, is also a horrific lifestyle and like ripe with abuse and sure. ripe with ripe, ripe with a lot of terrible, terrible things. So I don't want to necessarily hold the, the, that system necessarily up as a paragon compared to college football and college basketball. Um, but that that would strike me as that you know there's that uh, you know there's that economic incentive. You know, people want to you know if the NCAA folded football so that they could have a an IMG like thing for the best football players. I mean, in a way, as I think this through, that would probably be actually smart if you're a young, especially like a running back or a wide receiver, a skill position player. If you, especially now knowing what we know about head injuries and CTE, if you want to limit your exposure to those, to those injuries and potentially prolong your career and prolong your life, it is probably, you know, a potential solution to a lot of the problems, but how are you going to tell the people down in the SEC who are filming spring football on Facebook Live that we're going to be all, all the a lot of the five star recruits and top players? They're going to be going to this academy to learn sports like they do in all these socialist soccer loving countries versus coming versus doing it and doing and playing college football like we do in America. I just I, I think it's a wonderful idea, but the economics, the economic incentive isn't there for the pros to do it, I don't think. Well, in, in football, certainly, because, again, there's no competition. But I do think in basketball, there's starting to be a real financial incentive, potentially, um, because, and, and we've heard, like, Mark Cuban talk about this, a couple other people talk about this, by by allowing college basketball to be the the primary, if not sole, developer of U.S.-based talent, you create a very expensive proposition because, um, you know, the guys that get drafted out of Europe, by and large, are on contracts that last another two or three years. And unless you want to buy that player out of his contract, you got to wait until that contract ends before they can come over and join your team. Right. And, you know, frankly, that's not particularly... Uh, great from a, a business perspective. I mean, you know, you, you're now basically getting somebody else's player, and they're, they've got, you know, if you've got an, or, an organizational system of training that you want to install, if, you, if there's a particular set of skills you want your players to learn as they're coming up through the system, you don't have the ability to do that. Right, right. now, I mean, you, you, think in the, you think in the NBA – um, the number of truly like game changing players that are out there is relatively small. Right. Um, you know, I mean, right. Look, you know, Kevin Durant just joined the Golden State Warriors, and people are basically saying, "Well, there's no point in playing this regular season in 2016-17 because everybody knows it's going to be the Cavs versus the Warriors in the final." And they're almost certainly right. But the question is, how can we have so few game changing NBA players that we've allowed? that situation to to develop and exist and, right. and to some degree i have to think it's because we, you know there's plenty of there's plenty of really great athletes in the u.s who play basketball yet we have no consistent method by which they are developed right. uh, they, they generally have two 
completely different coaching systems that are that they they work under when they're in their high school years. There's their high school team, and then there's their AAU team. Right. And then they get to college, and they're probably under a completely different system there. And a lot of times, it's a system that doesn't really teach them the skills that they need to be great pros. It's right. a system that teaches them how to save the job right. of uh, the coach that's well, at that. And that that's one of the problems with player development is it runs headlong into the idea of you know, a coach's, what is it, you know, unless you get a truly either a great coach or one who's very com- comfortable and confident in what he does, coach is coaching for his contract. Coach is coach, you know, if a coach, I developed players, but we went 7-21, and 21, but they all got better. Well, you still went 7-21. and 21. If you're in the Big Ten, you're getting fired for that. Right. And then you don't have a job. Um, and so that, that, is, that was always one of the interesting things when I covered minor league baseball was how, Nobody cared how the team did. This was when I covered the Mets. And it's a weird philosophy because, you know, you want to develop kind of a winning culture in an organization. And, you know, if you have good players, you're going to win. But what the the team cared about was, you know, Fernando Martinez was the stud when I was there for a couple of years. And it was, you know, he he was batting. uh, 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 This is kind of an interesting story because they had him batting leadoff. Now, under no way was Fernando Martinez a, a leadoff hitter. He wasn't a speed guy. He wasn't like any kind of typical what we think of as a leadoff guy. They they had him batting first, and the manager told me one day this was because they wanted to make sure that he got the most at bats. And the leadoff guy was the guy who's going to get five, may get five at bats in a nine inning game as opposed to four. So they were trying to maximize that. That's the whole reason. They didn't care if it was good for the team or good for the win. It was all about the development, and that would be a really interesting model for the NCAA or for college basketball less you know what would it look like if if it if that was the model for you know you almost get like a four-year you know no fire clause contract where let's see how you develop your 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 players over four years regardless of record and I don't know it's an it's an interesting thing to think about because it 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 does kind of you know the, the idea of developing is such it's a long term thing that we're th- that we're talking about. It's the long game. It's the you know you know how how are we going to be? How can this player be better three years down the road? When and I, and I think this is an, an American sporting culture thing where we're very much how are we going to? You know, today is what matters. Winning right now is what matters. So yeah, um, yeah, and that's yeah, and ultimately that's. That's, I guess, the big conflict. I mean, like you look at the success of Iceland in the Euros, and uh, you know this is a country with three hundred and ten thousand people in it, and they they set out on this system to build all these academies to develop players, and they did so, and they did so to the point that they competed in a major tournament and made it to the quarterfinals. And you know their academy system was about making players better so that they could become pros, not about making. You know, not not about winning on the high school level or winning on the college level, and mm-hmm. I feel like you know you can get away with that in football. It's but it's it's being counterproductive in other sports where you have an international competitiveness, where you've got people from other countries who are doing you know training in the same sports, and right now it kind of feels like you know when like pure athleticism is taken out of the equation, and I think pure athleticism explains. Some, not all, but some of the the effectiveness of some of the top players in the NBA. Um, you take that out of the equation. You go you like more on a skill based level, and their players are a lot more ready to play professional ball earlier. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed. 
I agree. So, so. I know you, I know you got to get going. Do we have time for one minute on Zimmerman's question? Actually, we I think we should let's let's postpone that till next week because I think it deserves more than a minute. It does. It it, it does. So uh, flip side guarantee postpone one week for uh, for you, Matt Zimmerman. And if you have questions and topics you want us to discuss, we guarantee you one minute. We never say we guarantee you that week, so that's our loophole. Um, you can hit us up at uh, hashtag FlipSidePod on Twitter or Facebook, and we will see you. And, uh, yeah. We'll catch you folks on the flip side. Sounds good. So long, everybody.